Hey there, this is Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley. It's a podcast about making things up and making things happen. I love talking to creative people, and today I've got three for the price of one. There is a show that has just opened at the Renberg Theater here in Los Angeles. It's where we do the mismatch game at the L.A. LGBT Center. Uh, it's called The Bottoming Process, um, and it's a romantic comedy. It's written by Nicholas Palapple, and he's on the podcast today. It stars George Salazar as Milo, an aspiring writer. George, you may know from Be More Chill and Superstore. Um, he co-stars with Rick Cosnett, who plays John, who's a more seasoned writer further along in his career. These two fall in love, and Rick, you may know from the show The Flash. He's also uh, got a movie coming out, a uh, Paul Schrader movie called Master Gardener. But this play is uh, got a lot of things going on in it. It's a love story. There's a lot of societal forces on these two characters. And it's also very funny with a really fun supporting cast. So I was uh, excited to talk to the three of these guys. And Rick joins us a bit late. So it starts off with just George and Nicholas. But you will hear... Rick pop in about halfway through. Before we get to the interview, I want to remind you that this podcast, Dennis Anyone, is brought to you by Hilton Hotels. No, it's not. It's not. I made that up. Uh, I do it. It's pretty much me. Um, but there are two ways you can support the podcast. You can go to DennisAnyone.net uh, slash support, and you can leave a tip in my virtual tip jar. Help me cover my expenses. That's one way. Or you can become a subscriber to DNR Studios. That's a collective of shows. I'm part of it. And for a monthly fee, you get my show uh, two days early, and you get all kinds of other great shows. And you can learn about that at DNRStudios.com. And now let's get to the guys from the bottoming process. Here is the playwright, Nicholas Palapple, and the actors, George Salazar and Rick Cosnett. Joining me now via Zoom, it's the playwright of the play, The Bottoming Process, Nicholas Palapple. Hi, Nicholas. Hi. And we also have George Salazar, who plays Milo in the play. Hi, George. Hi, Dennis. Thanks for having us. So welcome to the podcast. Um, Nicholas, how would you describe the story to somebody who knew nothing about it? I always say it's a romantic comedy about two very different people who fall in love despite being very different. Um, and they just have to like fight to stay together. And then, you know, that's like the gist for all the straight people. And then when like, I'm really talking about it, I'm like, it's about power struggle. It's about race. You know, it's about falling in love with someone and trying to make love just be enough, but right. everything can't help but get in the way, you know? Right. And as much as we try to ignore it or try to make excuses for the things that actually matter, sometimes it's, it's all a lot of work and sometimes it's impossible. Um, and sometimes love is not enough. So I think, oh, kind of those things, you know? Well, I saw that you guys did a, a reading for this a while ago on Zoom. So, George, you've been involved in the piece for a while now. What what drew you to it? Oh, my God. Um, a, a Filipino playwright. I'm half Filipino. Right. And, and half Ecuadorian. Um, and uh, a Filipino director. And Rodney and I have known each other. My very first equity job was in a Filipino musical. And Rodney was a part of one of the readings of that. And I fell in love with Rodney's like goofball energy. The Rodney that you're mentioning is Rodney Toe, the director. Rodney Toe, the, the director. Who was on this podcast yes. last year. And, oh, amazing. Uh, but more than anything, it was, um, it was being thought of to play a part um, that is a gay Filipino um, 
who is the lead of the show. Like, this is just like, I can't stress the importance of that for me as an actor and just as a human being to get the opportunity to play a character that, that shares so many experiences with, with, with me, you know, like I feel like every part I've played in my career, I've been very fortunate because I'm, I'm, I'm always thought of as like, well, that'll be interesting. You know, like, um, I, you know, I, I played Seymour Krellborn. That's a role that's usually played by a white dude. Right. In Little um, Shop, which I saw, yeah, and which Little was Shop. terrific. Thank you. I think Little Shop was the exception, but usually, you know, pre Little Shop, I was always considered, a, um, for roles that were like the best friend. And, um, you know, the, the biggest show that I have been a part of is, is this musical called Be More Chill. And I played the best friend in that. But in the original source material, that character was like a, you know, a really tall ginger with a Jufro. Uh, and so, you know, like I've played these characters through my career that I've, I've had the opportunity to kind of bring a little bit of myself into them. Right. But it, this was the first time that I was approached with a character that was, I mean, me, right. you know, like there, I, I was just like, I was so taken by it. And when I got to read the script for the first time, you know, I was just blown away by the parallels of Milo's journey and my journey. Um, and it just, uh, it meant a lot to me to even just do the reading in 2020, you know, like if I had just been replaced, um, <laughs> by some mega star, uh, for the, for the actual production, at the Renberg, that would have been fine because I at least got to do this reading in 2020 in a time, a very dark time. Let's not forget. This was August of 2020. Um, and it was all over zoom, but it was, you know, it just, it meant the world to me that I got to, to, to even do that reading. And I've been kind of like poking at Nicholas for the last three years. And, you know, together we like, we wrote a pilot and, you know, I'm, I'm just, I, Nicholas's talent knows no bounds and he is such a smart and sharp and witty writer. Uh, and I'm obsessed with him and I'm just, I'm, I'm so grateful and thrilled that I, that I get to be a part of this production. Nicholas, what was the germ of the inspiration that that made you start writing this? Was it something that happened in your own life or just something you've been observing? I think originally I just wanted to write a romantic comedy. I think all of the plays I approach, I kind of pick a a lane or a genre, right? right? And this time around, I was just like, I want to write like a 2007 era romantic comedy where it's like cute. Right. And um, so if you watch the beginning of the play, I think you can maybe get a sense of that. But then, you know... As you write, like you, I, like literally, I just wrote myself on the page. Like, George and I are Milo Santos. Sorry. Um, and so when you do that, you just start to inject parts of your life into the play. And eventually, I don't even know when it happened, the play became what it was about. And it wasn't on purpose. It was like all organic and natural. And it just like flowed out of me. You know, um, I don't think Milo's story is necessarily like autobiographical. You know, I think all the things he goes through with like white people and white men and like the race stuff and the power dynamic struggles, like a lot of that is things that I also deal with, not necessarily in the same way. Uh, You know, like 30% of it is also observation, you know? Um, So yeah, it's like a whole bunch, but it did start the seeds were like, Oh, I want to write, 
me as Catherine Heigl, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> it had a bit of that rom-com. It's my yeah. first, uh, I think it's the first WeWork rom-com that I've seen. Yeah. Right? Uh, work, co-working space, meet cute moment. One of the lines that Milo says is, um, being mad at white people is my brand. And I, that made me laugh. Because... <laughs> Because I feel like these are very important issues that you're dealing with, and I'm coming from from a white person's point of view. But it feels like I think there it can happen where that's all you talk about, and that's everything is yeah. about that all the time. And one of the things that I opened up to over the last you know cultural awakening that's been happening is like things that I didn't think are about race are really about race. Like for, mm-hmm. as a white person, I'm like, oh shit. That voting thing is real. That's about race. Like, and I'm sure you guys know that your whole lives, but I was just sort of cluing in. But I, and they're important things to talk about, but it also could become your whole thing, right? It could be the yeah. only thing that ever gets talked about. And there's more, more, right? It, and I think that the play sort of looks at that in an interesting way. Yeah, I'm very that person too. Like, I was reading all those race books before it was like chic to care. Right. Like, when everyone was catching up, I was like, yeah, I read that already. Like, what are you talking about? Right. And so I very much, it was very much a part of my brand to be like, oh, white people, white supremacy. Like, you know, I, I'd always be like, I'm racist too, because I'm like doing the work. You know? Right. And so one of the things for me working on display and like, you know, was trying not to make it overwhelmingly like, I'm talking about this and talking about white right. people and da da da. And so, you know, that's where I really had to touch into the romantic comedy roots of it and being like, how can I say these things without being overwhelming, but also keep you entertained and make you root for the thing that Milo was also actively talking against, right? Pulling in yeah. love with the white man. Yeah. Yeah. George, for you, is it fun to play a love story? I saw you in suddenly in um, Little Shop of Horrors, but I I did a short film once and I got to have a love interest, and I'm like, ooh, I get to look at somebody like that, and like it was a thrill to use my eyes that way, or like it's fun to play love, isn't it? I feel so like like full and satisfied with this play because, like I said earlier, like when you when your career is built of just playing platonic best friends, right. <laughs> there is a yearning as an artist to get to do something a little deeper than that. And the fact that I get to fall in love with Rick and also have kind of a steamy. Yes. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> like th- these are, this is all uncharted territory for me. So I was, I mean, thank God for Rick Cosnett because he uh, takes such good care of me. He is like a sexy TV guy. And like, this is like his wheelhouse. Right. And I very early on was like, Rick, I don't know what I'm doing. You know, he's just like, he's like, yeah, you know, just, just feel it and let's just do it. And I feel so supported and taken care of by him. But I mean, it's, it's both incredibly satisfying and rich and also terrifying, but I'm like starting to, um, not starting to. I, I felt like very early on, I, I I understood what this was and 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 just kind of let go and and got rid of the like, what is it? What do I look like when I kiss someone? Right. Like I'm this? the next. You Ryan. know, like what am I gonna? Yeah. yeah, like what am I gonna look like to the audience? Do I have like a weird kiss face? Like, um, <laughs> is this gonna look natural? Because because you know, like. I have sex. (laughs) Like I I am a sexual being and and I never had the opportunity to share that part of me in, in a piece of theater. And so, I mean, it's, it's, it's thrilling and exciting and, and all of the, all of the ways that, that you want to be challenged as an artist. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, I wrote down some notes during the show that I don't remember what they all mean. Although I do remember (laughs) this one, N H. 
Um, Nicholas, did Anne you, Page. Anne Hathaway, did you write this entire <laughs> oh. play because you had an opinion about Anne Hathaway and um, they missed that you needed to find a place to put? You know, I'm full of opinions. Um, <laughs> Milo has a line in the play where John's like, what do you write? And Milo says, my opinions. Like, right. I just have so many. They're all based on, like, pop culture and white right. women. Yeah. And so, like, I literally just pulled one out because it fit. Right. But I think that there are people that share that opinion that she yeah. she she played it straight acting wise and should have gone for the big belt or something like that. I don't know. Maybe yeah. I was like, you know what? That's valid. I don't know if I agree, but I, I, I think that's I think we could talk about this afterwards in the courtyard. Um, well, yeah, that's why I love it. It's controversial. Yeah. We all have different opinions. Right. And it works. So, you know, stirring the pot and Hathaway style. It's dangerous when the two characters are pursuing the same thing, which is writing careers. And then there's mm-hmm. agents involved and somebody's up and somebody's down and success. It's got that all about Eve kind of like one of them mm. helps the other one, but then the other one maybe isn't as talented. I don't know. It's like thorny, right? Um, was that appealing to you, George, to play that kind of dynamic of the professional competition part of it? Y- yes, it was. Um it, you know, I, as a rule, don't date other actors right. beca- because that gets tricky. And I see it all the time. Like, I have many, many friends who date other actors. And, you know, even when both are successful, there's still this kind of unspoken competition, right? And And it's a very natural, real thing and also relatable, I think to people who are dating someone who shares the same field that they work in. Um, but yeah, no, I mean that, that power dynamic and the shift in power was, was a really exciting thing for me to investigate kind of like, um, how, uh, how someone like Milo, who is 29 years old, um, and maybe not as mature as John's 42, you know, how that kind of plays into, that that dynamic in the relationship of uh you know what happens when one person's star rises above someone's already existent star and how that affects the relationship and how that changes the way they speak to each other and how that kind of affects their love for each other it, it, it i mean it's so loaded the the play is so rich with conflict yeah. <laughs> conflict just like it never ends um no i mean yeah it, it was it was it's definitely um it it uh it makes it makes the journey for rick and i very interesting yeah you're right nicholas this line about la that i thought was so well observed about dreams and they if, you come, <laughs> if you're from somewhere else you come here can you talk about that idea a little bit and explain it better yeah so like the line is like if you're People come to L.A. to make their dreams come true. But right. if you're from L.A., your dreams just die here. <laughs> but, like, where are you supposed to go? Right. To, if you're from L.A. and you have dreams, right? Right. And, you know, I'm from L.A., born and raised. I've never left here. And I've always wanted to. But, like, I just never have. And things have just always pulled me back, whether right. it's personal. Sometimes it's been professional. And, you know, like, my dreams are like very much rooted in theater and, you know, like writing plays that will make me money to live off of. And so a lot of the time I question, I'm like, why am I here? Like, right. I can't do that here, you know, but then I stay here. So like my dreams are literally just dying in place. <laughs> and so it's kind of based off of that. Right. Um, 
But yeah, like, cause also like with all of my friends, everyone in my circle, no one is from LA except for me. And they all make fun of me. They make fun of how I talk and how every sentence is like riding a roller coaster and then ends in a question mark. And they all say <laughs> the word roof like rough. And I'm like, Oh God. Right. And so like, I'm always feeling left out and I'm like, but I'm home. Like you're the, you're the, yeah, you, you're invaded my <laughs> space. Yeah. Um, but that is yeah. interesting about LA. And, and I think other places, New York, people go there for dreams, but. People don't go to Cleveland for dreams. Like, it's an interesting thing about L.A. Yeah. George, where did you grow up? I grew up in Orlando, Florida. Right on. Um, and I knew very early that I needed to get the fuck out of Florida. <laughs> so as soon as I, I went to college in Florida, as soon as I graduated, I moved to New York. And I lived there for 13 years. And, you know, the way I talk about, like, my dreams is that, like, I knew that I wanted to be an actor. And the way that the the back door that I snuck in right. to uh, happened to be musical theater, right? Um, it, 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 I always had loftier, bigger dreams and wants and desires, you know. Like, I mean, this is a dream come true for me, like getting to do a straight play and not have to, like, sing, a, right. belt right. a song center stage that I can just, like... And I still made you do it. Sorry. <laughs> you still made me do it. There's a little There's... Easter egg at the end of the play. Oh, right, right, right. So, I, yeah, I, I lived in New York for 13 years. I did, you know, a lot of musicals. And in 2019, I kind of was like, I think I'm, I think I did my time in New York and I want to go to LA to make my other dreams come true. And, um, <laughs> and so, and so, yeah, I, I've been here since then. And, you know, the, the crazy thing about, <laughs> about dreams coming true in LA is that like, it wasn't until I moved to LA that I got to do, um, got to lead shows yeah, <laughs> and got to like do TV. And, you know, like I, I was in New York for 13 years and I felt like I was just kind of pigeonholed in the, as a musical theater actor. And, and now being out here, I've, I've gotten to have all these incredible opportunities to kind of, you know, flex my other muscles and show, um, the other facets of my existence and, and abilities. Um, and so I think that that uh, line is very true. <laughs> People come <laughs> here to make their yeah. dreams come true. And it's happening for me for sure. And was one of your dreams playing George Conway in American, uh, <laughs> American crime story beach. That's so random. It's so random. I, I will, I, I will say, uh, it is, it has never been my dream to play a Republican. Right. But you did it. <laughs> but, but you did it because you're an actor. You're an actor. But I did it because I'm an actor. Uh, but, but, but it was, it has always been a dream to do a Ryan Murphy, uh, uh, TV show in some way. So that was, that was really neat and cool. But, um, but yeah, that, that, that was, uh, I really hated looking in the mirror every day when I was on set. <laughs> <laughs> I also saw this meme recently, speaking of politics, where, like, we need a George Santos musical and you need to star in it. And I feel like you've embraced that. Is that right? Oh, my God. The second that that guy, like, burst out on the scene, I was like, I can do that. I've already played a Republican named George. And so, like, right. I, I, yeah, no, I, like, I, I have a treatment and we've been, like, kind of shopping yeah. it around. It's a, a musical TV series about George santos and where all of his where all of the lies are, are told in musical numbers yeah. uh and that he really like embraces the fantasy um what a delusional psychotic wow. I know. nightmare that person is it's like the talented mr ripley with uh yeah but but not as sexy. but a musical comedy yes for sure <laughs> but, with, be... but with but with drag queens in it many many episodes um 
In the courtyard after the show, I saw a fan give you a um, plant, uh, a stuffed plant, for, like a little shop plant. It was so sweet, and I could tell you were touched by it. Listen, the, I'm constantly floored by the creativity and, like, skill and craftsmanship of these, like, young people who, like, make these things. And, you know, I, I'm I'm one of those people who, like, I can't, like, throw things out when people give me something that I, it's clear that they've put a lot of work and time into. So this massive... Matt, it's bigger than the than the than the puppet plant we used in Little Shop, but it's right. now sitting in the corner of the guest room. I'm looking at it right now. It is huge and was crocheted in four days. The person's name is is Alex. They are new to crocheting and somehow put this thing together. It's 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 it, I mean it's gigantic. It's huge. And it will live forever in this corner. I, I may buy a pedestal for it. I don't know. <laughs> it was really sweet. But I was also, you know, I don't know a lot about Be More Chill, but my understanding was that was a fan-driven success, right? So I think you can be an actor and work in all kinds of things and never have that kind of a project where you feel that kind of a connection, right? Can you talk about what that's like? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's always been my... Uh, I grew up... As a Filipino Ecuadorian chubby gay kid, I grew up not seeing anyone who looked like me. I know that like a lot of people of color say this in interviews, but like I, I, I especially mean this. Like I really did not see myself on stages, on television screens, on movie screens. And so when I got the opportunity to get to be a part of projects that were higher profile, it was very important to me that like I got to be that person for someone. And so with Be More Chill, like we talked about earlier, like you can't create a viral sense. We talked about this off camera or off podcast. I'm I'm wearing, I'm wearing, yeah, I'm wearing a a t-shirt for the listeners. I'm wearing a Miss Vanjie t-shirt right Right. now. We were talking about how brilliant Miss Vanjie was for like capitalizing on this, like on, on the, the viral meme, uh, ness of, of, of her, of, you know, legendary exit line of just saying her name over and over again. Um, but you can't, you know, you can't, you can't plan for viral, whatever you can't uh pay for that you know you right. people try you can't manufacture it, it you can't plan it no it, it it happens naturally and um and so it was it was uh it was a very strange sensation to be a part of and my number in the show michael in the bathroom was kind of the eye of the storm and yeah. um and it was uh, you know it was it was a very like i, I it was a very sensory overload period of like two, three years for me, um, of, of receiving gifts like this. It, it, I, I never, I initially didn't know how to accept these things. And, (laughs) and, uh, and over time you kind of just, you know, something that I did spoke to a real human being on a very deep, deep level. And isn't that what we are all aiming for as artists is to, is, is for our art to speak directly to the person who is consuming it. And so I just feel, I feel very fortunate and lucky that I, that time and time again, I get to be a part of things that are really speaking to people. This young person who obviously knows me from be more chill uh, came to see this play and, and was like, I, I was, a I was a crying mess during the end of the bonding process. And, and, uh, and it's, you know, art is powerful. And when, it, and, and when you get to be a part of really meaningful thought provoking, um, 
and relatable art. It's, it's the best feeling in the world. It's, you know, it's, it, it, um, it feels so much better and it's so much more fulfilling than doing something that feels really commercial, you know? Yeah. And I would imagine for you having that goal of representing somebody and giving somebody a face to be able to to be getting gifts and things like that. It's bigger than I think you probably imagined in your, when you, Oh my God. Yeah. Oh yeah. A hundred percent. You know, like I feel like when I started, there was like, I would walk out of the stage door and like a friend would be there and then I would (laughs) get coffee with them, you know? And, and, um, and now I get to like, you know, meet people, real human beings and have, you know, conversations with them and, and kind of hear what, what, um, you know, hear, hear the impact of art Right. Uh, and, and, and you, you know, I just feel so lucky to, that I, that I, that I get to be a part of projects that are like that, especially this one. I mean, I'm so excited for, um, for gay Asians specifically to come see this play and this play is written for them, you know? Oh my God. Yesterday, um, someone came up to me on the sidewalk when I was talking to a friend and he was like, he was like, are you the playwright? I was like, yeah, why? And he was like, that was my story. And the only thing I could say to him was like, I'm so sorry. Because it's like, (laughs) like that you had to go through that. Wow, I know. (laughs) Because it's not like a good, like, thing to say that's your story. Because it it gets pretty tough and it gets really truthful, I think. Where it's like, if you went through that, you probably went through a hard time. And, but it, it, it's weird. Then at the end, I would have to be like, actually, but thank you. Like, thank you, but also sorry. (laughs) Yeah. Because the the two characters, Milo and John, there is real love there, but there's all these other things. And I think Milo questions, am I just a fetish? Is it, 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 am I, is it, there's a more there or or what's going on? And, and then we talked about the, the professional help and it's thorny. Let's just put it that way. Talk to me, um, talk to me, Nicholas, about the title, the bottoming process. Um, Yeah. Why did you decide to call it that? I was listening to an episode of Las Culturistas with Matt Rogers and Bo and Yang, like two very yes. flamboyant gay people. And randomly, they just said the bottoming process. I don't know what they were saying or what they were doing. I don't even remember it anymore because once I heard the title, I was like, oh, that's the title of my play. Right. And so it didn't mean anything, but have, but it, in the beginning, it was just something like, like, ding, it just sounds weird, right? right. Like it's going to attract people. But then as I wrote the play, like, I started filling in pieces and the title started to actually mean something. Right. And you know, like it's funny to see people react to the title because like some people are like, Oh, that's the title of the play. Some people are like, Oh my God, is that actually what I think right. you're saying? Um, are we going to get lessons and like yeah, yeah. and things or yeah. And so, but the thing is, it's all of those things, right? You right. know, it, it's about sexual position, but it's also about the ways in which we are our own downfall. It's about, you know, um, how we rise and how we fall. So I think there are many meanings to it now, um, even though it started with no meaning at all. Right. Um, someone texted me yesterday at the preview. They were like at the ticket, ticket check-in and they were like, someone just saw the title of your play and is losing their mind. And they were watching the other show. And I was like, well, upsell, let's get them in. Exactly. Upsell, move those units. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, I just wrote down. <laughs> move <those> units. <laughs> I found another note that I had written during it. Milo at one point expresses concern that he's a fraud for dating a white man. Like he feels like a fraud because of everything that he seems to stand for in his work yeah. and stuff like that. Can you talk about that idea? 
Well, if you ever look at your most engaged and activisty Asian friends, they all date white people, um, <laughs> at least in my circle. So it's kind of just like a an observation on that. You know, it's like even the people who are the most engaged and most active and will ride the hardest for our community still are unable to get past, you know, all the things that like media teaches us what right, is beautiful should, and what is, want. yeah. And here's my boyfriend, Skip Smith, who looks like Robert yeah. Redford. Like, yeah. yeah. And it, it's very that even like people in this cast, you know, even me, even like, you know, the character of Rosie played by Julia Cho says like, you know, my oldest sister is married to a white guy. She has a BA in Asian American studies, but her kids are really pretty. You know, it's like, right. we can't help who we love, but you know, we can still be ourselves and be activated and ride for what we ride for. Um, right. Even though it goes against what we were actually like fighting against, but you can't help but love who you love. So right. it's just an observation on all of those things. Right. It doesn't pre- pretend to have the answers, but it does call them out. And when she did say yeah. that line that you mentioned, I laughed out loud. Because it was like, <laughs> she, she was kind of a, a shit caller. Uh, there were some wonderful supporting characters in your piece. So um, sh- uh, shout out to them as well. Um, George, you got to do something that I think is one of the coolest things in show business. You got to do a tiny desk concert at NPR. Yeah. <laughs> right? And I did. Here's, uh, here's my question. It looks like you just go into their offices and do a concert. But is it really fancy and there's lights and it's just a set and is it, is it, or is it really like, you know what, there's not really a bathroom here except, like, how down and dirty is it really? No, it's literally in their office. Right, good. That's what I want it to be. Yeah, and so what ends up happening is they, um, they, and they really just invite the employees to, to be there, but because Be More Chill had such a huge, like, uh, young following, um, employees were allowed to bring their kids. And so, um, and so no, there's, there's no lighting. <laughs> Good. I want it to there's be. No lighting. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, we, the, it, we, we, we did it actually the day after the Tonys in, in 2019. And that was actually a really traumatic night for a lot of us, me especially, because so the Tony awards, um, our producers had saved up the money to buy us a performance slot uh, at, uh, on the Tonys. And uh, they told him that they didn't have time uh, in the telecast for a performance of Michael in the bathroom. And then, uh, and then unexpectedly without anyone knowing, including Joe Iconis, the composer who was in the audience at the Tonys, um, they did a, a parody of the, the, a full parody of the entire song uh, during the telecast. And it was like, Oh, it, I just felt like my like heart had been like ripped out oh of my, my chest. God. And then the very next day we had to go do this tiny desk concert. Oh my gosh. And, let um, me, let me clarify this. I, first of all, I didn't know producers had to pay for a slot in the Tonys. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I didn't know that. Yeah. And it's so, a lot. It, it costs a lot of money. Wow. And so that's the number that, that, that seems to have really popped from that show, but they, yes. they didn't, they were going to, have you do that on the show for some reason and then they did a parody of it with yeah. their host or whoever's doing it and you had to sit there and watch the yeah, parody yeah, oh and it was james yeah. corden i have issues but that's yeah. that's he's my Anne hathaway but anyway <laughs> <laughs> no i don't know whatever that's rough yeah so that was really intense but the fact that we got to go to dc 
uh, you know, we, we got, we got on a bus, I think at like 5 a.m. Uh, we pulled into DC. Um, we had a very like quick sound check and then we just ran through. Cause that's the other thing is like, you, you don't get, but it's not one of those things where it's like, Oh, I have screwed up. Like, let me do, um, let me do that number again. Like, no, we, we, we like truly, they just film us singing, singing these things like one time through. And then they got us back on a bus and we were back in New York to do a show that later that night. <laughs> but the good thing is you got to have a positive experience after the Oh, a thousand percent. It made, oh God, it made everything so, I mean, oh. I'm, I got to do a, a Tiny Dust concert. Yes. Come on. So cool. And the reason I asked how phony it was, because it felt like there were a lot of people applauding. It felt like a big crowd. Oh, it was, yeah. So no, it was packed. Yeah. It was, it was really, really packed. And, um, and you know, when you're doing a musical, you're, and this is pre pandemic, even when you're doing a musical, you're very aware that like, if you catch a cold, you can't do your show that yeah. night. So I was so nervous about all of these strangers and all of us just being crammed into again, pre pandemic crammed into the NPR office. Right. But, um, but, uh, no, it was, it was, I was, it was, it was an incredible experience. And then like, and then they get to, they tell you like, oh, if you have anything that you want to leave behind the on the bookshelves, yes. yeah, you, you can leave stuff. So I left like, um, uh, I left a, a keychain that a fan had given me, uh, that was like be more chill kind of keychain thing. And I, I left it draped on one of the shelves. And I think in the Taylor Swift tiny desk, you can see the keychain behind her. Damn right. <laughs> that was kind of cool. So you're basically friends with Taylor Swift now. I think I think that's what that means. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Who owns the tackle shop of gay bait? Yes, she totally <laughs> Another does. white woman opinion. Right? Exactly. <laughs> we all have opinions about Taylor. That, that The bait shop was a funny line, too, that made me laugh that was in your show. So. Well, thank you. Yeah, it was very good. Rick's with us. Hey, Rick. Hi, guys. Hi. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Dennis. And I, uh, I saw your show last night and I really enjoyed it. And we've been talking about it. We have questions. Um, Amazing. What appealed to you about the piece? Well, um, you know, I think it's, it's a really important piece. It's, it's a voice that we really, you know, um, don't hear a lot of in the mainstream. And uh, I was just really, really, you know, excited to see the whole thing come to life and uh, to be honored to really be a part of this story and to be a part of telling this story. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's just a really needed voice. I think that we, um, we don't get enough of. Yeah. Um, as a writer, I relate to, um, your character. I'm also of a certain age and there's a scene that just gutted me where he's written young adult novels and has a big hit series of them. But there was a scene later in the play where I guess his agent sort of is like, they're not that great. Or like, he, he, she sort of says, you know, you're not really cutting it. Or like, I don't know. It was just like, mm -hmm. ouch, right? You got to dig deeper or where your talent yeah. is sort of called into question. And that was sort of gutting to me. Can you talk about playing uh, the creative part of your character, the part that wants to be a successful artist? Yeah, it's uh, very well written in that sense um, that, you know, you know, he's had this six commercial success and the checks have been coming in over and over and over and over. Um, so he hasn't really had to, you know, get off his ass and do as much as he would have if they weren't coming in. So, um, there's a gap there and that sort of catches up to him, um, creatively. Um, 
uh, and you know he's also reaching a certain age where he starts you know he's he's he is having a little bit of a midlife crisis as you know Milo very rightly points out which is which is why he gets so triggered by it um and yeah it's 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 great playing someone who is also you know creative in a different field um is quite delicious um and he's very you know specifically creative in that he does write young adult novels um which you know um not to be you know <laughs> uh judgy or anything but you know it's probably he probably wants he wants to he aspires to be a little bit more you know um of, of a better writer as right. we all aspire in our creative fields to be at the top um respect you know in in terms of respect um so you know he knows that people don't respect him as much as he would like even though he has a lot of money yeah right but he digs deep and he comes up with something but what that is is something that he, he sort of writes about the Milo character, almost from the Milo's point of view. And I'm like, dude, you can't do that. Like, I was like, oh, no. <laughs> so, Nicholas, can you talk about that idea of, like, uh, somebody sort of taking a story that really isn't their story to tell? Um, and is that okay? Because you're a writer. You probably want people to be able to express themselves. Like, how do you yeah. balance those concerns? You know, I I think in the play we touch on it a little bit and it's all perspective because you know i think john is inspired by milo and he takes it but he he doesn't think he's doing anything bad right. you know he thinks he's he's writing a love story for the person he loves the most it's our story we, yeah yeah we all have like blind spots and you know part of the play it, the journey of the play is like you know how do you learn to get rid of those blind spots right or like and how can you just like love the person without trying to hurt the person, you right. know? Um, but it's hard because it's also his story. He's just doing it from a, a, a different kind of way that um, shouldn't be the way. But it's like, again, like he doesn't mean to do it. He thinks he's doing a good thing, but it's, it's not. Right. And also it's all up to interpretation, but yeah. you know, yeah. and the thing about this is like, I don't think it makes him a bad guy for doing that. No, you know? no, it doesn't. But um, it is a blind yeah. spot, I think, when you talk yeah. about that idea. It's, it's exasperating watching someone like that do that. But um, you know, we know so many people like this who are so educated and so um, seem to have everything together, and then suddenly there is this blind spot where they just don't get it. They don't understand. Um, they don't, you know. They, 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 it's 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 quite baffling, and that's that's definitely John. Yeah, I also think at that point of the play, like John is just blinded by all the things that he wants. He wants Milo so bad. He wants to be in love with Milo so bad that he is writing this book based off of how much he loves him. But he also wants this new level of success and respect so bad that he's writing this thing that maybe he shouldn't, but he, but he can't see it because like, he just wants so much, Yeah, you know? And for me, like watching Rick play that and do that, like, even though on the page by a bad actor, we're, we're seeing a white villain. It's like, not that at all. It's just like this guy that you want to love and also like, protect in the same way you want to do for Milo and it's like really hard but it's like it's like this thing and it's like a like an explosive scene and it's for me it's hard to watch because I'm rooting for both of them even though 
one is most more right-ish than the other <laughs> but these actors are so charming and rick has so much heart and level where i'm like i'm like get it john get milo now you know yeah. like, it's like all the time right i mean i'm i'm hoping that yeah you know it's by by making him uh re- relatable that people won't see him as other they'll still see themselves in john and then hopefully come to a realization right because he's trying like he's a good he's not a bad person he's 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 his heart's in the right place um the title references this the bottoming process and there's a bit of dialogue around sexual positions and you know and and that dynamic and the question that i thought of is like can something like that just be what people prefer or does it have to mean something? Does it have to mean dominance? Does it have to mean all of these things? And I think that's interesting that your play brings that up. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that idea of, of sexual positions as a metaphor for uh, power? You know, I think, I think for me as like a, an Asian American person, it is very that you know, I don't, I think for some people they have the privilege where like, it doesn't matter and they can do whatever they want. Right. But to be, yeah. Yeah. But to be an Asian person, it's just so loaded from like a uh, colonial mentality from like stereotypes. Like they're literal, like educational college term for all of these things. Like right. I, I was doing some rewrites yesterday and like, I needed to reference like a textbook and the textbook is literally called Brown Boys and Rice Queens. Like, there's no way for me to like ignore that in the same way other people have the privilege to. So you can't just let go and have yeah. fun and do it feel like, no, no there's all of no. this stuff, right? Even yeah. if I do have a preference, right? Even right. if I do have a preference, it'll always be in my mind. And I'll always be thinking like, are they seeing that in me? Um, or sometimes I'm like, is that my preference because it's my preference or is that my preference because of right. all those things, you know? So like, I, I don't know. You know, sometimes it can be confusing. I don't know what I want, right? And I mean, am I attracted to this person because I just think they're attractive or because what they yeah. represent in the big culture? Yeah. You know, they're shining on me um, and, and they have this kind of power. So it's it's very interesting. Um, Rick, before you jumped on, I was talking to George about the fan base that he's developed through Be More Chill and, and that they're, they're a certain kind of active kind of fan base. And you've been on The Flash for a while and, and those kind of shows have a a kind of real more active fan base than you would get on like a NCIS or something like that. What's it been like to connect with fans and to be on a show that gets such a devoted following? Um, It's been very cool actually. Um, And to mirror what John um, has gone through (laughs) um, because I'm so in the play right now, Um, you know, I, was not on that show for a number of years because I, I died on that show. Um, I'm so sorry. I didn't know. (laughs) Spoiler alert. Yeah. Um, but you know, so long ago now, um, and coming back on the show has been (laughs) very redeeming and the fan response has been so lovely, um, that it's actually been very, um, very good for my, (laughs) my ego and also um we love you, you know, you're back you're not dead we love yeah, you we yeah yeah so it was like oh, oh they did love me they yes. they really did love me yes. <laughs> Sally field over here just um living in my own delusion but um more white women opinions yes thank, thank you <laughs> right exactly uh yeah yeah <laughs> but it's been cool that you, that you got to go back and now the show's over it's done right 
Yes, it's done, and there's two more episodes to air, and then it's done. How did it yeah, feel to week be and the week after? How was it? Was it poignant to be done? Was was it? Did you cry? It was very poignant. Everyone um, was very emotional, um, you know, and uh, yeah, I cried on the show, off the show. Um, you know, it's uh, it's been an epic, epic journey, personally and professionally, for everyone, and everyone's had a different. Um, you know, experience. So it's been cool. And you go yeah. to like fan events and, and things like that, where, whereas other yeah. shows wouldn't have that kind of a thing. Yeah. 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 That's been, that's been really awesome to meet people who are, you know, are obsessed with it for whatever different reasons. And I just get, kind of get to, uh, you know, hook onto that. So, yeah. 